Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to the Kentucky New Era, about 80 inmates at the Vandenberg County Jail in Evansville in southwestern Indiana will be moved soon to jails in Illinois and Kentucky because of overcrowding. Vandenberg County Sheriff Dave Wedding told the Evansville Courier and Press that the county jail was designed to house about 550 inmates, but that the growing inmate population surpassed 800 one weekend in March. Vandenberg County has signed a contract with jails in Jefferson County, Illinois, and Davies County, Kentucky, to accept the majority of the 80 inmates being moved. Wedding said that most of the Indiana jail officials he contacted said they could accept fewer than 10 inmates at a time. Voice of San Diego reported that even though state law prohibits an inmate from being restrained by the wrists, ankles, or both during labor, delivery, and recovery, the Sheriff's Department routinely restrains such inmates. The only exceptions are if the inmate is considered a threat to herself or others. Restraints are removed at the request of an attending physician or if law enforcement officials ascertain that the woman poses no threat, but that rarely occurs. According to Carol Strickman, an attorney with the Legal Services for Prisoners with Children, which has published reports on the shackling of pregnant inmates, said restraints are supposed to be not the norm, but the exception. Strickman also said her organization assumed that San Diego was complying with state law because the Sheriff's Department's written policies state that the restraints are only used when, quote, deemed necessary, unquote. For this week's episode, we share the first part of a conversation between Nicole Siegel and Jackie Wang. Wang is the author of the recent book, Carceral Capitalism. Today, she shares what led her to carceral studies and the themes in her new book. She speaks about having an incarcerated sibling shape the trajectory of her life and shows how capitalism is imbricated in the prison system, producing what she calls carceral capitalism. Here they are. When I was a junior in high school, that was when my brother Uh was incarcerated. And that was, I always say that my biggest life accomplishment is graduating high school because this was like a hugely traumatic um, event and it was really hard to just get back on the rails. My father lost his job. Soon after this happened, he worked worked for the... Because of his... It was, yeah, he basically just got, you know, super depressed, but also he worked um, for the Department of Children and Families doing computer work and he was like an older employee so it's oh. also you know with austerity it's much um cheaper to just austerity right. plus ageism equals right. yeah. yeah yeah so um so this was a very very difficult time so i had to like i was out of school for a while because of things related to my brother's case like people in, involved making threats on the family and oh. staying at a friend's house for 
couple months. So it was like, yeah, a very stressful time and oh. kind of a, you know, a miracle that I was able to go to new college. Um, not long after so um and I was you know just with my family life kind of being just like so devastating and kind of having to shoulder a lot of the emotional fallout with my parents even well you write about in your book having to shoulder some of the expectations that they then projected onto you right salvage the family honor and so Mm -hmm. on I mean they were they yeah. were really affected by the stigma of incarceration, right. weren't yeah. they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as just pure concern for your brother himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, yeah, when I got accepted into PhD programs. I mean, I was accepted to Harvard literally days before my brother had a hearing he had been waiting oh. for for many years. Uh-huh. So this was also mixed in my feelings around the hearing, And then also, you know, this decision about where to go to grad school, it was all mixed up. And then the pressure my family Mm. was putting on me to, you know, go to Harvard as a way to redeem the family. You know, we we talk all the time about the collateral consequences of incarceration. Mm -hmm. But what we usually mean by that is uh, what happens to the person when they get out Mm -hmm. and all the ways in which the disadvantage and the stigma follow them. But Mm -hmm. we don't so much talk about the collateral consequences on the families, Mm -hmm. how those concentric circles just widen out Mm -hmm. and affect Mm -hmm. everybody. It's financial, emotional. On every level, it just, you know, bleeds across categories of life. Right, yeah. And even my little brother, you know, Uh um, Yeah, I feel like he was, you know, a little bit younger. He was Mm -hmm. two years younger than me when it happened. He was a freshman in high school? Yeah, yeah, around that. Um, Either either he was in middle, late middle school or early high school. You don't know where to find resources to deal with these things when you're young. You're kind of just left with your family trying to cope. Even socially, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, people at our high school were just, you know, they w- went to the trial and there it was, it was sort like, of a fishbowl feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, something that is, you know, ongoing. Um, How, and, it, it's been 10 years now? Um, more than 10 years, since this is when I was um, 16 and I'm 30 now. So his sentence was almost exactly a year ago, commuted to 40 years. He had juvenile life without parole. Oh, right. Basically, what happened was the Miller versus Alabama Supreme Court case abolished mandatory juvenile life without parole. Right. Um, it was ambiguous whether or not it applied retroactively, but the Supreme Court determined that it does apply retroactively but discretionary juvenile life without parole is still Mm -hmm. on the books. Florida was a state that was originally resistant to acknowledging that it did apply retroactively but now they've had to grant um, juvenile people who got um, life sentences as juveniles resentencing hearings and some of the people who have been resentenced I think I heard a figure that maybe around a third or so just got life again. The judge who initially 
sentence you has to do the resentence oh, no. hearing. So it creates a situation where if they let you go, they're kind of admitting that they were wrong. That they made a mistake. Yeah. So you need a really mature person. And where my brother was sentenced, Pasco County, Florida, it is, um, you know, notorious. They're notoriously punitive. Um, yeah. So it really not only depends state by state, but also county by county, district by district right. um, mm-hmm. as well. Even before the thing, uh, before my brother's case, um, I had read Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete. Okay. Um, and, you know, even when I was a teenager, you know, uh-huh. bringing Ashanti Austin to New College to talk about prisons, and he used his honorarium also to um, fund, I think it's the Malcolm Malcolm X Grassroots Project uh-huh. as well. Um, so it was, yeah, it's something that I've not only been thinking about since I was an adolescent because of my brother, but something that I've kind of continued to, yeah. to think about and to work on. An important intervention that queer prison abolitionists have made is this very thing that we are talking about. Um, in Captive Genders, there's an article... Captive Genders, this anthology edited by Eric Stanley, Nat Smith, and Cece McDonald. Yes. Uh-huh. And in the anthology, there were several articles that talk about this very thing, about um, how advocating for LGBTQ-sensitive prison accommodations can actually just expand the carceral state. So it could lead to something like the building of uh, a special, you know, prison for gender variant and LGBTQ people. So this is something that um, definitely um, Black and Pink as an organization is aware of and wrestling um, with and wrestling with as yeah. well. Yeah, because it's always dilemma. you know if any prison organizing and prison work that you do, there's always that tension that you have to absolutely to navigate between which is, conditions and right reduction. So when I came to Harvard. And I didn't even know that I was going to write this book, Carceral Capitalism. Uh-huh. I, I actually had an, another idea for the book before I got to Harvard. It was going to be on revolutionary loneliness. It was about oh. women and trans militants. So that was the, the first idea for the semiotext book. And mm-hmm. I wrote some drafts, um, but I ended up just kind of starting. Yeah. I just kind of scrapped the previous drafts and created a new project. That was inspired by Joy James's essay on Asada Shakur, Framing the Panther, mm-hmm. where she talks about how women in the Black Panther Party, like Angela Davis, um, Elaine Brown, they're often defined in relation to a male figure. So, you know, Angela Davis was doing support for George Jackson, Jackson. and also Kathleen Cleaver was linked to Eldridge Cleaver, Mm -hmm. and Elaine Brown had um, been um, 
the partner of Huey P. Newton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so her article was about how Asado is kind of an outlier and how huh. people try to frame her, but the, the frame breaks down and they try to represent her in a certain way, but she kind of like uh, resists all, all these mm-hmm. attempts to reduce her the, to this like caricature of a revolutionary. So that was what inspired the initial idea for the semiotext book. So when I got to Harvard, I knew that I wanted to do a project that was in carceral studies. Elizabeth Hinton was um, one of the professors who was recruiting me to come Uh to Harvard, and actually we met in the Crime and Punishment Warren Center seminar. There's Uh actually like quite a robust community of people who are doing carceral studies here at Harvard and it's actually like very new it's something that's been building in the last few years the field itself Mm -hmm. uh, has you know only come to see itself as a field Mm -hmm. in the last few years We're kind of in this moment that you could call a reform moment where there are a lot of people organizing around the issue of prisons, producing scholarship. It is something that's in the media that people are talking about now and seeing the, the ways in which mm-hmm. mass incarceration is racialized and that is characterized by racial domination Mm -hmm. as well Um, but you know looking historically at what has happened during these moments is sometimes in the reform moments there are changes that are made that can um, backfire so this is something that we uh, talked about in relation to um, queer organizing around mm-hmm. prisons. Um, so thinking about... It's certainly something that happened in relation to, say, feminist organizing against violence against right. women. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, gets concur- it gets converted into a form of carceral feminism. That's right. Where it expands the domain of policing using protection of women. As, as an pre- alibi. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretext. Yeah. And so, and this also, um, if we think about the elimination of indeterminate sentencing regimes, a lot of people thought that if you had determinate sentencing, that right. sentencing would be less arbitrary mm-hmm. and, and less it, racist, right? And fairer in general. Exactly. But then what happens is all, you know, these um, minimum sentencing, this minimum sentencing regime uh, takes off where harsh penalties uh, are automatically given for certain crimes and then you actually have a situation where people are serving more time than they did under the indeterminate sentencing regime so one I mean basically since the 1970s every kind of attempt to mitigate the unfairness or the obscene size of the prison system through policy has backfired because of tough on crime politics have been so saleable Mm -hmm. and so compelling to people and they have co-opted every reform that people thought would work in the opposite direction which is why i think people are turning away from state-based solutions so completely Mm -hmm. now yeah really I, i mean i think your activism is a perfect example of the kind of 
hope people are investing in an anarchist abolitionism. Yeah, and I think um, this is also why it's important to have abolition be a part of the conversation. Yeah. So when, um, you know, our social and political imagination is limited by reform, by these maneuvers you can make within the state apparatus, then that can actually foreclose, you know, more revolutionary politics that are trying to undo the prison system. So in terms of thinking about what is capitalism, there's so many possible answers, and I'm not sure I have a definitive answer, because um, one, you know, thing that I've got from, you know, reading Marx is he's basically trying to undo the fallacies of classical political economy. So a lot of his responses to classical political economy are, you know, a rejection of their misconceptions of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And and I was just thinking about what I was reading today where he he talks about how economists have this kind of whimsical notion of where value comes from and even thinking about their account of the emergence of capitalism is kind of like there are these entrepreneurial individuals that you know basically have this capacity to accumulate and organize and capitalism kind of organically emerges out of this like merchant class that is Mm -hmm. um, trying to maximize their Profits, but his his narrative is like no first you know what happens is primitive accumulation where there's basically this use of state apparatuses to expropriate um, land and labor. So you have so you to, need like an authority right. who's going to take stuff away from some people right. or from the earth. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and at this time, this, this is the age of empires as well. Right, so right. There's a we're, talking, div- we're talking 17th, 18th centuries. Right, oh. yep. And um, there's this development of a kind of a military force, naval mm-hmm. power, all of this. Yeah, so he talks about the peasantry in England and how basically what happened was you had to remove them from the land so they could no longer feed themselves. Because right. um, if they could feed themselves, then why would they come work in your factory? Right, exactly. So you have to have a legal structure in place that is also um, guaranteeing rights around private property. And so a lot of what's happening during um, the period that Marx is writing about is um, the elimination of the commons. So property that people shared and utilize for the purposes of subsistence you have to privatize it, um, and you have to create this class of people who are dispossessed of everything except their labor. And then that creates this class that he talks about, which is the working class, people who literally have nothing to sell but their 
what he calls labor power. Right. And what happens is there is this power imbalance between the capitalist class and the working class because what is happening is the the capitalist class is stealing from the laborers and their profits are basically coming from the unpaid portion of the laborer's labor power. That's right. I think maybe this is one of the really key things to understand about capitalism from a Marxist or Marxian, that is later than Marx, kind of Mm -hmm. Mm Marxist-influenced perspective versus the classical political economy or even the contemporary sort of conventional political economy Mm -hmm. viewpoint, which is that Marxists and Marxians think that there's exploitation going on, whereas economists just think people are being paid the value of the labor. So it's the question of, are you really being paid what the Mm -hmm. labor is worth? And Marxists point out, there's no way you could be getting paid the value of your labor or there would be no profit. Profit only comes if you can find a way to pay the labor less than their work, to to get value out of the process, to squeeze it out somewhere. And you can only do that by exploiting uh, people. Exactly. That's the Marxist conception of capitalism right. and how and how it works. There's always that there will always be this power imbalance where the capitalist class is exploiting right. the working class. Um, and the capitalist class requires the state along right. with its military authorities to do the violence work involved mm-hmm. in exactly uh, making sure that people aren't able to evade or refuse wage labor. One of Rosa Luxemburg's big interventions a century ago was that capitalism always requires, you know, theft from outside the formal capitalist sphere. Mm -hmm. So even workers who have something like freedom of contract, where they can enter into this contractual relationship with their employers, and they agree on a wage, etc., that is not the only dynamic, you know, operating under capitalism. Right. In the colonies, what's happening, and, we're th- and if we're thinking about, like, the British Empire, is that they're, you know, off-colonizing That's the world right. and stealing um, from people in the colonies. Um, and this still in happens. In Asia, that, Africa, and the Americas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this so, is the prime period, in fact. The expansion of capitalism is the prime period right. of empire, mm-hmm. imperial expansion. Exactly. Not only are they, you know, taking raw materials from the colonies and engaging in production using slave labor, so in the Mm -hmm. Caribbean, like sugar production, indigo production in the southern United States, cotton production Mm -hmm. using slave labor. Not only um, are the colonies a source of free or hyper-exploited labor, I mean free as in slavery. Unwaged. Yeah, unwaged. They also can use the colonies as markets for That's their right, products yeah. as well. And slave labor operates to suppress uh, the wages mm-hmm. of uh, of wage laborers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this, so there is a way in which capitalism is, you know, as it's actually historically been enacted, has always been 
racial capitalism. I don't feel qualified to say that till the end of time it will always be racial capitalism. Certainly it still is Absolutely. racial capitalism. Yeah. Um, and a key part of that is how it now uses the prison system mm -hmm. to function, right? Capitalism right. is deeply enmeshed in the prison system. and mm -hmm. um, Is that what you mean by carceral capitalism? So when I talk about carceral capitalism, I guess I should start by situating um, the book in a tradition that already exists. So there are a lot of scholars of the carceral state who have written about the political economy of prisons, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore mm -hmm. being one, um, Louis well, Khan also mm -hmm. is another academic who's written about the political economy of mm -hmm. crime in prisons. And one idea that I kind of pick up on a little bit in the, the book is this, this notion of surplus population. The way that this surplus population thesis has been articulated that mm -hmm. mass incarceration emerges alongside deindustrialization as a way of socially managing African Americans who have been shunted from the labor market. Mm -hmm. California, Texas, and Florida actually experienced the largest expansion of incarceration during this period that we sometimes called the mass incarceration mm -hmm. period. Um, they together have the biggest prison systems and mm -hmm. it doesn't neatly fit into that narrative of the North and the Midwest using prisons to basically prevent a crisis from occurring that related to deindustrialization. There's a, a pretty well-respected idea that prisons mm -hmm. have come in to kind of sop up the surpluses created right. by deindustrialization, right. surpluses of land, labor, and capital. Yes. And this is what mm -hmm. Ruthie Gilmore argues yes. in Golden Gulag, exactly. right? And yeah. so, so what Alex Lichtenstein is saying is, well, that may have happened in the North and the Midwest, in the Northeast and the Midwest, but in Flocatech, something else happened. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just prisons coming in to absorb the surpluses generated by this particular crisis in capitalism. Mm -hmm. It was something else. Yeah. So what was it? What did happen in well, Florida, he, California, yeah, Texas? Yeah, he talks about Sunbelt penology. So uh -huh. he talks about the kind of marriage between this neoconservative political ideology, uh, law and order politics being uh -huh. a component of it and um, the expansion of private prisons and Florida certainly experience a, a pretty large expansion of private prisons, although uh -huh. it's certainly um, not the dominant mode of incarceration. You know, in the place where Pelican Bay was built, there was um, a timber industry that had, mm -hmm. you know, recently collapsed and there were a lot of, you know, white workers who mm. no longer had any source of an economic livelihood. So I started thinking about municipalities using prisons and the criminal justice system and policing as a way of generating revenue. So oh, right, like the famous Ferguson example. Exactly. Um, and so I w basically wanted to 
think about why what happens in Ferguson, even though there have been um, some reforms since the Department of Justice um, published report, right? their report that yeah. revealed that it was basically this fiscal scheme that yeah. was happening. The with, squeeze on the poorest members of right, the community. Exactly. Yeah. The financial manager of Ferguson was in correspondence with the police chief telling him how much revenue he had to generate using um, the police to write God, tickets. That's so explicit. I know. That's the, that's the thing. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but the government's own investigation into the Discovered this. Ferguson yeah. Police Department revealed this, and Ferguson is not an outlier. Um, so you found a lot of other instances of this kind of carceral capitalism. Now I understand how you're using it. You're, mm -hmm. you're saying that the prison is actually being used to generate profit, in this case by municipalities. Yeah, and it's not only that the prison is being used to generate profits, that's, I, I think, carceral techniques are being developed to fend off government fiscal crises. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities.